Don't be too hard on Brother Allerton or the other mistake in the bulletin because I'm the one who prepared all that stuff. So clearly I missed some things this week. It's probably why our sermon comes from the book of Hezekiah this morning. But no, we'll be continuing in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to, Lord willing, finish up chapter 2 this morning, verses 14 through 18. And I'm going to, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read all of chapter 2. I'm going to start all the way back in verse 1. Although the sermon, you can be, you can rest assured, is going to be about 14 through 18. But in Hebrews chapter 2, so we can, so we can remember the context, let's begin in verse 1. Where the author says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And quite simply, our author's purpose here in these verses, really in verses 17 and 18, we could have taken verses 14, 15, and 16 with last week. They support his whole argument here. But the key point here is going to come in verse 17. 
And the key point is he's introducing, the author is introducing the idea that Jesus is a high priest. And this is a radical idea. It may not be radical to us today, but it was radical to his audience in the past. His main purpose here is to introduce the idea that Jesus is a high priest, and not only a high priest, but the high priest his people need. Again, he's just introducing this idea, but he wants to show that Messiah, in being the high priest that his people need, must come in the flesh, in the flesh, must be incarnate in order to fulfill the role of high priest. When we leave church today, we must understand, hopefully here, begin to understand what a high priest does, what that means. And we also need to begin to understand that we too need a high priest. And it is that Jesus needs to be that high priest. He needs to be our personal high priest. And it is only through his intercession, the intercession of a merciful and faithful high priest, that we will ever escape the wrath of God. The question that's going to come out of this sermon and is going to be, I think, asked over and over by us in the coming weeks and months as we go through Hebrews is, do you trust in Jesus to represent you before the throne of judgment? Because it is only by that trust, it is only by faith alone in Jesus that he will be our advocate, our defender in that judgment. So let us... As we look at these last few verses in chapter 2, let's review just briefly. Indulge me if you will, because all these points we've looked at in the last couple of weeks and the points he's making today support that warning passage that he built up through. If you remember, he goes through chapter 1 and he's showing how Jesus is much higher than the angels, much greater than all the angels. And that led up to his point in the very beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. What was his point there? The first warning passage in this book, do not neglect the gospel, but instead may pay much closer attention to it. That was his first warning. There's five more warnings that are going to come in this letter. That was the first one. And then what we've seen in chapter 2 as we've gone along, he's made a series of points, and they are building up from that warning, don't neglect the gospel, Understand these points about the Messiah that's coming. And the, the important one you really need to get is that he's a high priest. Do you remember those other points, those two passages that I preached last week and the week before? The Messiah is not a failed king. His audience probably expected Messiah to come and introduce the kingdom of David again. But instead he comes and he inaugurates the kingdom of Adam that kingdom that should have existed over all of creation, not just in the Holy Land, not just in the hill country of Judea around Jerusalem, but a kingly reign that should have been over all creation. And that he didn't do that just for himself, but remember last week, he brings many sons to glory as well. He brings his brothers into that kingdom through trust in him. So now he's building on these points to really lay down an exclamation point. If they didn't understand Messiah correctly then, 
they're really going to be shocked to understand that Messiah must be a high priest, the high priest. So let's look at that. Let's turn now to verse 14, where we have these words. It's so important in Hebrews and these other letters of the New Testament to pay attention when you see the word therefore. Because he's making a conclusion, he's making a point, and here we have it again. Since therefore, right, in verse 13, he had tied these two ideas together of putting your trust in Messiah and that that is what the children, the brothers would do. And he's picking up on that point, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, since the people of the Messiah have this quality of being living, breathing human beings... With all the things that attend to that, flesh and blood, what do we think of when we think of flesh and blood? Weakness, illness, the passage of time, that flesh and blood begin to break down, it stops serving us as well as it did. That's the quality of the people that the author's talking about in the previous verses. And he says that Messiah likewise, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Messiah had to come in the flesh. And in fact, that word there, if you have the ESV, you have the word partook. Do you see it there? Some of you might have a different word if you have a different translation. But that Greek word is the same word that's used of seizing something, grasping hold of it. You think of grasping, maybe you think of you know, trying to get something that's slippery, trying to get away. But in this case, it means you know, getting a full-on wrap-around tackle on it. Pressing into it, grabbing hold of it. In other words, the author is saying it's not that uh, there's just this relationship between Messiah and taking on flesh and blood, but he pushes his way into our experience. He pushes his way, he seizes, he seizes hold of flesh and takes it on himself to experience the things that we do as people, as living material beings. He comes down in and he becomes truly, fully human, just like we are. Interestingly enough, the, the word order there is actually reversed. The author says blood and flesh in the Greek there, putting an emphasis on the blood of Christ. I think because it's his blood that's shed, right? His blood that is shed on the cross. He wants to emphasize that it's real blood that Messiah sheds. Rules out any idea that... Uh, in the ancient world, they often believed that Jesus was actually kind of a ghost that appeared as a human, but didn't really suffer. They didn't like this idea of a suffering servant. And yet the author here is taking great pains to point out that it was a necessary thing and that Messiah doesn't do it reluctantly, but he pushes his way into it. He seizes it. He grasps it. He partakes himself of the same blood and flesh that his people have to deal with. And why does he do it? Why does he take on human flesh and blood? And I think the answer here is astounding in just a little phrase here tacked on to the end of verse 14. Look with me, if you will, to the end of verse 13. He does it so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Messiah comes and his purpose is to die in order to take away the weapon out of the devil's hand. And turn it against him. Do you see that in the passage there? What an amazing statement. I don't, I don't know what you think about the idea of the angel of death. 
Uh, that's, a, you know, that's a concept that goes around today. In the primitive church and in Judaism that time, they believed the devil to be the angel of death. In other words, that not only did he have the ability to go before the throne of God, you can see this in Job, the first couple chapters, and make accusation against mankind, but he also had the power to carry out the judgment for those accusations. Do you see that? The devil could go before God and say, look at this person. They've sinned. How are you going to put up with that, God? And God would say, you have the power to go and to execute judgment on them. What is the penalty of death? Or of sin, excuse me. The penalty of sin is death. And the devil had that power. In killing the Messiah, the devil probably thought he was going to have the ultimate victory over God. Use the, the weapon he was given to use against mankind to bring judgment on mankind and to use that against God. What a blasphemous thought. It, you know, it kind of gives me the chills to even talk about it here. But that's what the author is addressing. So imagine the devil, he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the mob in and around Jerusalem and the Romans together. And they're going to take Messiah and they're going to put him to death on the cross. They're going to use the devil's weapon. And Messiah seemingly just goes along with it, doesn't he? Meekly, what does it say? He's like a lamb going before those who are going to slaughter him. Little does the devil know that in dying he loses his ability to hold the fear of death over the people of God. It's an amazing statement. Remember we talked last week about Messiah becoming a pioneering prince. Remember the founder of our salvation. One that leads his people into some new land or new condition in this case. And he does so in dying on the cross. Well here you see that parallel as he goes through the cross. He, he seizes our humanity. He seizes flesh and blood to take it on. He's not afraid to come. And to go through the fear of death. The temptation of sin. To die on the cross because he knows he's going to defeat the weapon of the devil and take it out of his hand and liberate us as our pioneering prince. Now let me make an important distinction. I've said the devil had the power to accuse and the devil had the power to execute judgment in killing those who sin. But let's be careful to understand it is God and God alone in Genesis 3 who pronounces as judge the penalty for sin. It is not the devil who makes the penalty for sin. God gives him the power to carry it out. Do you see that distinction there? But it is God alone who places the judgment of death for our sins. And I'll point out to you again, I say this all the time, God uses sin sinlessly. He's able to use the sinful actions of his creatures. In this case, the devil abuses his power. He takes glee in accusing us and killing us, and he thinks he's going to use this weapon against God himself. God uses that sinful activity, but God does not become sinful. What does God do? He turns it against the devil himself and defeats him. He uses sin sinlessly. Praise the Lord for that. That is an amazing thing that God does. We see over and over in Scripture. So in verse 15, in Taking, snatching away the power of death, snatching that weapon from the devil, 
The Messiah delivers all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. If you don't believe that we are in bondage to sin in our human condition, the author here thinks we are. That not only are we in bondage to sin, but that bondage causes a fear. A fear of dying. I've talked about this a couple times in the last few weeks. Do you have that fear? Have you ever experienced that fear of death? Yeah, it's a natural thing. It's a symptom of our bondage to slavery that we all get when we're born. We're born into the sinful condition. We are born into a bondage of slavery. We cannot help but engage in sin, love engaging in sin. And yet we know somewhere down within us that that judgment is coming. That causes that fear of death. We don't want to go to that judgment. Now, if you're a believer, you may be losing that fear of death. That's what the author here is saying in uh, verse 15, that he's going to take, that the Messiah is taking away that fear. Now, you can make a distinction there. We can, we can still fear that process of death, because death is often painful. There's often suffering involved. But the Messiah is taking away that fear of death, delivering us from it because he's taking away that fear of judgment that occurs when we die. So we're no longer in slavery to sin. Now look how in verse 16 you can see now, if you've been following along with my argumentation here, that this is no help for angels, is it? I said last week, I think I've said a couple times, that the angels are not saved. They have no hope of mercy. The angels are servants. They are powerful servants. They are messengers of wind. They are servants of fire. Some of them are obedient servants throughout their whole existence. Others are fallen. They are prepared for and used for sinful purposes, like the devil. When the devil sees what's happening here, when the devil sees that he is disarmed, he's left with no hope. Brothers and sisters, when we're in sin, we have the hope, if we will turn to Christ, of having that sin taken away. The devil has no such hope. So the author says here in verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he, Messiah, that he, Jesus, helps. That's true. There's no hope of salvation for fallen angels. And there's no experience of mercy, even for those angels that faithfully serve the Lord. But who does he help? Verse 16, he helps the offspring of Abraham. The Greek word there is the seed of Abraham. Not, as we've seen previously, uh, the where we've talked about in previous verses, those who, like Messiah, are descended from Abraham. But he talks here about the seed of Abraham. And I think he, the author here agrees with Paul who in Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, that are the seeds of Abraham. It's not just, it's not that he helps angels. It's not that he helps all of mankind. But he helps those who've put their trust and their faith in him, who are counting on him to help them. It's those that he helps. That was point one. 
Point two, we're going to get now into the meat of it because we're coming to verse 17, which I said was really the, the transitional, the key passage here where he's going to make his point. And we have here in the ESV, it says for surely, it's kind of a stronger way of saying therefore. But we have essentially another therefore. I'm sorry, I read 16. It's in 17 in the ESV, it does say therefore. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's drawing a, a conclusion from all these points we've looked at today in the last couple of weeks that again, this, this whole coming of the Messiah has to be the incarnation. It has to be that the Messiah comes in flesh and blood. And the, the word he uses here, if you come with me back to the first part of 17, my ESV says he had to be made the Greek word there is actually the word of obligation. It's something like he ought to be made like or he's obligated to be made like. And, and they're not wrong in the SV when they say he had to be made. right? But I want to bring out that idea that there's an obligation there. And it's not an obligation that comes from outside. This Greek word bears this, this nuance that it's an obligation put on himself. That, in other words, for Christ to perfect or complete the plan that we looked at last week, one of the steps is he has to be made like those he's saving. Do you see that there? Therefore, he was obligated to be made like his brothers in every respect. He has to come, and he also has to be born. He has to come, and he has to have a family. He has to know poverty. He has to know being tired. He has to know getting sick. He has to know the temptation of sin. Think about the life of Jesus. He's not a wealthy man. He goes to place to place. He's probably hungry, tired. He gets hot when it gets 106 and he's wandering about just like we do. But he didn't have a home to go in and get a cool glass of water. He's mocked. He's challenged. When you get a little authority and someone challenges you, doesn't that kind of get your back up? How dare you challenge me? Here's the king of creation. And everybody challenges him on it. It seems like everything he says in the Gospels. And then what happens? There's a conspiracy. And they get together a mob. And they go from mocking to brutalizing him, torturing him. And they kill him in the most humiliating way possible. On a cross where he has to suffer with thieves. He has to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus obligates himself. The Messiah, the Son of God, let me say that properly. The Son of God obligates himself to go through all these things. Why? Look with me, if you will, to the middle of 17. So that, in order that... He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in order that he might do it in the service of God and in order that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's three phrases here and you probably expect that I'm going to examine these three phrases and that's what I'm going to do next because the whole point of him going through this incarnation, this obligation that he puts on himself, dying on the cross to complete it, and so he can do these three things. And much of the rest of what we're going to look at in Hebrews, not today, don't worry, but in the coming weeks and months, 
So we go through Hebrews are going to talk about these three things. So he's introducing it to his audience. And so I'm introducing it as well. And I'm not going to go deep into detail on all these things because we're going to see them as we go through. But I'm going to give you uh, an introduction to them. And keep in mind his audience is probably thinking, what on earth is the author talking about? Jesus, the high priest? We're going to come back to that in a minute. But that is not something they would be expecting. And we'll talk about why in a minute. Let's look at these three points, though. First point is the merciful and faithful high priest. And again, what we've been looking at is going to lead into... in the next several weeks, identifying and de- de- defining these terms for us. But right now, suffice it to, to, to say that there's a little bit of shock value in what he's saying here. His audience understood what, what priests did, right? They, they understood that they needed to, as Jews, bring a sacrifice to the temple, to where it would be taken by the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel that's appointed to work in the temple. And then the Levites would take that animal sacrifice or that grain sacrifice. There's all kinds of sacrifices if you read the Old Testament. Different things you could offer to God as sacrifice. And they would prepare it. And they would give it to the high priests, which were Levites. But Levites who were descended from Aaron. And they would go in and they would offer those sacrifices on behalf of you. You could not go to God directly and give an offering. It had to be mediated. In other words, someone was in the middle by these priests. They were your intercessor, a word I used earlier. They interceded on your behalf. And that's how God wanted it. God told them, this is the way you're to worship me. Okay? And once a year, there was a special sacrifice where they would offer a red heifer to wipe out the sins for that year, first of the priest, of the high priest. You see, he also had sins that had to be atoned for, right? And then he would offer the rest of that offering to wipe out the sins of the people just for that year. So they had to do it every year. And you had to participate in this to be right with God as a Jew. Well, here now they're saying that Jesus is a high priest, but he's a merciful high priest. That system I described didn't involve any mercy. You didn't didn't come and confess to the priest. You just brought your offering. The priest knew that you had sinned during the year, and he knew that, if he's honest, that he sinned during the year. And he didn't need you to say anything about your sins. And honestly, he didn't even need to really care about you. You just need to go through the steps, go through the motions of offering the sacrifice. This high priest that the author talks about is one that's merciful, one that cares about you in his work of making an offering on your behalf to God. Why does he care for you? We just went over that, didn't we? He suffered, he was tempted. He follows that up. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to, when you come to him and say, I need to give a sacrifice to God, something that helps me, 
He's not just going to go through the motions. He's going to say, you know what? I know what you suffered. I suffered like that too. Now, again, the author of Hebrews later is going to show that he didn't fall into sin. That he wasn't born with sin. So when he said he has to be made like his brothers in every respect, he doesn't qualify that to say, but I think he means that Messiah was without sin. Right? But his emphasis here is on Messiah having the same experience with sins that you do. That temptation, that awful burden that you can't escape, that you can't get away from. If you, you've got the culture, you've got your friends trying to get you to sin and you run away from them. You go in your house, you go into the, the closet, you sit down to pray. And there's that old heart, right? And it dredges up all that stuff. You're trying to pray. It's tempting you to sin. You can't escape it. You can't get away from it. If you went to a deserted aisle somewhere and you thought, hey, I'll be here with my Bible and I will be immune to sin. Well, you've drug along the flesh, haven't you? And you're going to find some way on that island to sin. Messiah is faithful. When you come to him, he knows what all that's like. After all, he endured it. After all, it was part of his plan. He grasped the incarnation. He grasped flesh. He grasped our experience. In order that he could know what it is like for you to go through the temptation of sin, the suffering of sin, the fear of death. And John Calvin makes this excellent point, as he often does. Now follow this. He goes on to point out the Son of God, if you think about it, he had no need to experience, he had no need of experience that he might know the emotions of mercy. Follow that. Think about that. The Son of God doesn't need to experience mercy to know what it is. He's perfect in his knowledge as the Son of God before the incarnation. So why does he do it? It's so that we could be persuaded that he's merciful and ready to help us. Because he's acquainted, John Calvin says, with our miseries. Isn't that insightful? It's not that God learns something from our experience. It's God goes through it to convince us that he knows what we've gone through. The second phrase here he follows up with, and I think he follows it up very closely, to introducing this idea in verse 17. Follow me in the middle here. The first, the first phrase, so that you might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And then he follows it up very quickly, in the service of God. With respect to or with reference to working for God. He wants to be careful to say to his audience, look, I'm not introducing a new religion. Messiah is not a priest in a way to himself separate from Jehovah. Right? What is happening here? Is not a violation of the Old Testament, where it's only the Levites who are to be uh, working in the temple, and it's the sons of Aaron who are to be the priestly, fill the priestly office. He's saying, in a way, this is part of God's plan as well, and He's going to show His work, isn't He? Those of you who know Hebrews, in the coming chapters, right? I'm not going to go into that, but I want you to understand why He adds that here is to be careful to show them. That he's not introducing something new or radical. He's saying this is all part of God's plan. It's going to intersect with 
and work with the Old Testament what his audience knew about priesthood. And the third point is he had to be made like his brothers in every respect in order that, this is the last phrase of verse 17, he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, this word propitiation is probably a word you use often, right? It's a very obscure technical term. I know I've used that word a couple times in my series, in in preaching through Hebrews chapter 2, about these technical terms, but it's important to understand them. And if you want to know any one word and its technical definition, this is the word, propitiation. So I'm going to define it for you here. Propitiation is a type of sacrifice that fully satisfies. It fully satisfies. It completely wipes out the offense. Okay? And in this case, the propitiation, what it wipes out is the wrath of God that's coming on these people, these brothers, these many sons that are being brought into glory. It's the wrath that's due their sin. So as high priest, Messiah is going to offer a sacrifice that completely wipes it out. We'll come back to that. Because I want to bring up, there's another word that you will often hear, another type of sacrifice called an expiation. Have you heard this term expiation? It's often used. And that's another type of sacrifice that covers over the offending thing. Kind of like uh, how we cover over a dead body. We, we feel uncomfortable looking at a dead person, so we'll put a sheet over them. We cover it over so it's not seen. Okay? There are sacrifices in the Old Testament that are, are said to be expiations. Okay? It's, not, it's not that these two are in conflict. Because Christ's sacrifice is also an expiation. It covers over this sin. Right? But the author wants you to understand the fully wiped out portion of this sacrifice. And that's why he's highlighting this term propitiation. So it's not, they're in con- it's not that they're in conflict. I hope you see that. But we need to get the idea here that the, the sacrifice that Messiah offers as high priest is one that completely wipes out the debt of sin. When our great high priest offers the sacrifice on behalf of his people, there's nothing left afterward to divide them from God. That's the important point he's trying to make. Now, you might have an older translation. There's a great English word used in place of propitiation here called atonement. Does it, maybe somebody has that, or I think that may be in the King James Version, this word atonement. I understand that that word, this may, may not be right. I didn't go and look it up, but I, I, I was taught that that word atonement is actually a mashup of the English phrase at one minute. At one moment. And if that's true, it's a beautiful picture of, in English of what happens when this propitiatory sacrifice is given. Because it takes two warring parties and it obliterates the thing that keeps them apart and it makes them at one. It brings them together. Do you see them? It causes an at one moment, an atonement. Do you see that? That's the point he's trying to make to his audience. That Messiah 
He's, he's put an obligation on himself to be made like the people in need, the people suffering in the bondage of slavery. The obligation is that he would be like them so he could be merciful to them as a high priest so that he could serve God, complete this grand work of, uh, of atonement, this grand work of salvation, and so that he could bring these two parties together, that they could be one. What a beautiful picture in Scripture here, all in verse 17. So what are the points here? Again, he, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review here a little, so uh, bear with me as I repeat these ideas. But I want to I just put them fresh in your head as we make op- application here to this passage. Messiah seizing blood and flesh, he does so in order to die. We looked at that in the first few verses. So he could use death against the devil. He snatches that weapon out of his hand to use it against him. He gains the experience of the people he saves. He learns suffering, temptation, fear, and especially, Messiah especially learns mercy and obedience. Messiah becomes like his brothers in order to represent them before God as a merciful and faithful high priest. And Messiah is also that sacrifice. He offers himself to God. He's the high priest, the offerer, but he is also the sacrifice that wipes out that sin, that completely wipes out that offense. Having that in mind, let's go back to what the audience must be thinking. Because they need a perpetual, continual priest. They need to constantly be hustling up these sacrifices to bring, to be offered, because their sin is an ongoing concern. In other words, that system of sacrifice in the Old Testament is a futile system. It never actually accomplishes anything. It never perfectly completes what it's on about, these sacrifices, right? And you remember we looked at last week or maybe it was the week before, when Jesus dies, he's completing what he's doing. So think back to that warning passage. The audience is saying to the author is saying to his audience, excuse me, the author is saying to his audience, don't neglect the gospel. Pay much more closer attention to it. For heaven's sakes, don't go back to the law with its futility. Look at what Messiah did to end this once and for all. And that's the good news. Don't neglect it. Pay much closer attention to it. Look what he does in interceding, in standing in between the wrath of God and the people who need it, his brothers. He learns sufferings and and he dies. Just as his brothers do. He defeats the slave master devil. Using the devil's own weapon. And he offers the most efficacious, the most effective sacrifice. Which is himself. Because he's the most effective offerer. He doesn't become the offerer through descent from Aaron. He becomes the offerer because of the work he does. And the mercy he learns to give. 
Calvin says it's because he becomes merciful that he is a faithful high priest. What does this mean to us? Well, we are, well, by itself it's glorious, isn't it? To apprehend such a great and glorious Messiah as Gentiles and to do so by faith alone. But we are always tempted to look for other ways to come to God but the way that he's come about, that he's come up with. Again, Messiah doesn't fail. Messiah's not a bolt-on plan that's like he's taught about in churches around here that God had a plan for the Israelites and they just couldn't do it, so he scrambles to come up with this other plan of salvation. Messiah's incarnation is the plan of salvation. So not only do we need to know that, do we need to understand it, do we need to embrace that we need a high priest, we need to stop offering our works as if they're some kind of substitute for what he does. Believers, we are often in a situation where we fall back into that. I know as believers, we don't want to do that. As new believers, sometimes we don't really understand the relationship. The Bible tells us we're to obey the law. And we say, yeah, we, we want to be obedient to the law. We want to have do good works and we want to do good works. We always don't understand, especially as new believers, the relationship between those things and what Christ does. Right? Those good works, that obedience are gifts that God gives to us. Trust in the obedience of Christ and the works that he committed on the cross. But we often as, no matter how long we have been believers, how mature we are, that temptation comes along to say, you know, we go, it's not so much look at what I've done as doesn't what I've done count for something? And what's often paired for that is Jesus is no longer merciful, but now disappointed in us because we've stumbled and we've sinned. Harsh because we can't get it right. Beloved, Jesus is not looking at you, a believer, with anything like harshness or disappointment. He looks at you with love and with mercy and with a smile and compassion because he knows what you have had to endure. So we need to make sure that we identify when we fall into that trap. We need to be looking for when we start as we go along in our Christian life, adding in our works as if they somehow in any way can compete with Christ. Our friends in the Roman church have made a great deal about taking the special works of Christians past who've been martyred or done some great act of mercy themselves and saying you can add that to Jesus' works. You can't. Jesus' work is sufficient for everything we've done. His work alone is that propitiation that brings God and sinners together. Same with Mary. I talked about this last week. In the Roman Catholic Church, they can look at Jesus as that harsh 
warrior king who's going to come and put everything in subjection under his feet. And instead of dealing with a harsh Jesus, who can help us? Surely his mother can help us. She can intercede on our behalf. The author of Hebrews says we don't need help from his mother. We don't need help from anybody because he knows us and he loves us. If you are a believer today, you need a great high priest and you have one. He is the high priest on behalf of all believers. But brothers and sisters, he's your personal high priest. When you die and go before the judgment of God and those books are opened, I was reading about that in Revelation as Brother Allen was talking about that in Sunday school this morning. The great throne judgment, the books are open and all your deeds are in there. All of them. Your good deeds, your wicked deeds, they're all there. But you're going to have a personal high priest who knows your deeds and knows your difficulty. And he's going to say, he's not just going to say, hey, look, I've saved all the elect. He's going to say, I saved this person. I already paid the penalty for this person. I've given the propitiation for this believer that completely eliminated their debt. That's what we mean by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It means having a personal high priest who will be there to advocate for you in the judgment. Your own defense attorney. One who will say, this person is not guilty. I've paid the penalty for their sin. If you're an unbeliever, you are a poor, poor, poor unbeliever. There is no one to help you with the coming wrath of God. If you've not put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be sitting there on the judgment day by yourself. And you may think, you may think that you can count on some of those good works you've done. But in those books of your deeds, I think if you're honest with yourself, you will see that there is a lot of sin there that you won't ever be able to answer for. Your works, are your works really going to suffice before an angry, wrathful, just, all-knowing judge? But there is a high priest that is waiting to be your advocate as well. And look at what he's done. Let me repeat it again. He's suffered. He's been humiliated. He's endured temptations. The devil comes to him and offers him what he knows he's going to get anyways. All of the kingdom of earth. The fear of death. The threat of death. And he endures death. Unbeliever. He's done all the things... That he's faced all the things that you've had to face. He's lived a full, true human life. He stands ready to be your high priest if you will call on him and put your full trust and faith in him. In other words, you're believing that on the day of judgment he'll be there for you. That he will stand ready and that he will intercede on your behalf in the judgment. Call on him. Confess that you're a sinner, that you need him. That you need him.
Come forward and tell us, the church, that you've received Christ and be baptized. That is the only way. It's by faith and trust in Christ alone that you will avoid the wrath of God. So in conclusion, the author's purpose here was to introduce to us the idea that Jesus is a high priest. And not only a high priest, but he is the high priest that we need. When you leave here today, I hope that you will begin to think about your need for a high priest, your need for an advocate advocate to stand between you and God. That you need Jesus as your personal high priest. And that what, I hope you will think about today what he has done. He hasn't done this as an afterthought. He hasn't done this as an accident. But he came and he became incarnate. He took on every part of flesh and blood except sin to save you. So I want to ask this question again that I asked in the beginning. Do you trust in Jesus to represent you before the throne of judgment? Are you still counting on some of your works? Are you putting your faith alone, only your faith in him, in God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now these things are so weighty and they're so difficult. And we can't even really truly understand them without you giving it to us. So we pray that you would do that. You would open our minds to understand the scripture, that we'd meditate on them, reflect on them. And we rejoice that what a, what a, what a tremendous thing that the Son of God did to take on flesh, to suffer and die, to inaugurate the kingdom, to offer a sacrifice to you that wipes out our sins. Help us to really, truly reflect on these things, to internalize them, to live by them, Lord. Help this word change how we live. And Lord, we pray that you would put sin to death within our flesh and that you would continue to conform us to the image of your beloved son. It's his name we pray. Amen. If you'll take your hymnal now.